Welcome back to Redesign, brought to you by MoMA. We're a human-centered design agency who believes in working together with our clients and partners to make infrastructure accessible and inclusive to all. I'm Ollie Bennett-Coles, Head of Marketing here at MoMA, and one of your hosts for this series. And I'm Emily Yates, Head of Accessibility and Inclusive Design, your other host for this podcast. Welcome. So listener, I'm guessing you've probably heard the phrase, happy customers make for happy business. But how can we ensure that their voices aren't lost in the constantly moving cogs of your business? A common failure in modern organisations is a disconnect and distance from the end user. And where does this usually stem from? Well, a stale and outdated company culture certainly doesn't help. So in today's episode, we're going to find out how to put the customer at the heart of your operation and create a step change in performance by revolutionising your business culture. So who can we expect to hear from in today's episode, Em? First up, we're delighted to introduce Derek Bishop, a world-renowned expert in culture change and employee experience with over 20 years experience, who's currently director at Culture Consultancy. It's a pleasure to have you on, Derek. Pleasure to be joining you this morning. And our second guest on today's podcast is Andrew Dickinson, a hugely experienced head of train service delivery with prior roles at Southwestern and Great Western Rail. He's currently working as service delivery director at Keolis Amy Docklands. Great to meet you, and thank you for joining Redesign today, Andrew. Thank you for the great introduction there. I'm really excited to be on the podcast today. Okay, great. So let's dive right into it. Let's talk about each of your personal and professional journeys. Could you both share a little bit about your backgrounds, what led you to your current roles, and what some of your primary motivations are right now? Derek, let's start with you. My earlier part of my career was in financial services in a variety of roles across operations, customer service, and change program delivery. And as time moved on, I moved into leadership roles, which were very much around turning around poorly performing operations or customer service areas, or setting up new operations to support new propositions. So when I look back, I sort of realized that I was an internal change agent. A lot of what I was doing was understanding the landscape, providing clarity and aligning, you know, formulating plans, mobilizing people to deliver on a performance improvement, an experience improvement or a new proposition. I'd also done a, some work with, as a leadership development consultant, working with global teams, helping them to bring about high performance teams, improve their leadership. And working with global teams, you sort of realize how national cultural differences and organizational culture differences influenced how they approach problems. So you could have a team facing an identical problem, but they'd solve it in completely different ways. That really sparked my curiosity around organizational culture and national culture and the influence that it has on the way we do things. And so that 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 fueling my curiosity then led me on to, to co-founding Culture Consultancy and, and everything we do. I sort of had that fundamental belief that success can only be delivered for an organization through enabling the people to be their best. Whether that be for customer experience, performance, it's about the people that make the difference. 100%. So interesting. Great. And Andrew, what about yourself? I've been in the rail industry for 17 years, just started on a graduate training scheme for a couple of years. And I got to to go around and really take some time to learn about the industry, how it works, how it doesn't work what are the good things about it, what's the not so good things about it, and just immerse myself in the world of rail and, and see how the industry works so that I could uh, go into a job and go into this industry longer term and learn a lot more about it. 
delighted I did it. It's one of the best things I did. I had no idea what I was going to do leaving university, but by chance I found that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've spent most of my career on the Great Western route out of Paddington down to Penzance, Bristol, South Wales. I was in a number of customer service roles, starting out in a customer information project, then into station management in the uh, Thames Valley around Slough, Mays and Head, Twyford area. Did that for about two and a half years just before the Olympics. And then we went into to London 2012 and we were a big station interchange for the Eaton Dorney venue for the, the rowing and everybody knows how good we were at rowing. But that was great. Loved it. London 2012. Why can't we have it back again? Can we have another Olympics, please? Because it was amazing. After that, moved on into performance and looked at train service performance and, and management and how we how we get better at delivering the service that we, we run and did a couple of good things there before moving into a head of train service delivery role. From there, I moved into the same role, but with Southwestern Railway just before COVID. I was there for three years, a little bit longer because of COVID than I would have liked, but we did some great work there to uh, work with Network Rail on some continuous improvement activity and actually worked with, with yourselves on a control redesign project and how we can better work together, the better use of technology and communication and systems and processes and kind of take a step back, use that time that it was a little bit quieter to take a look at ourselves and say, how can we do things better? And when we come out of COVID, is it going to be different and a better experience for everybody? Amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much. And some really nice parallels there between what you were both saying. Making change externally for that all-important customer journey, but then also making change internally to making sure that colleagues can reach their absolute potential and get so much enjoyment from the delivery that they're bringing to the to the project or program. That's really nice. Thank you. And thank you for sharing. So let's now discuss the current roles that you're both in. If you could give us and the listeners an idea of what your day-to-day looks like and some of the challenges and rewards of your jobs, that'd be great. So as a co-founder of Culture Consultancy, my responsibilities are spread across overseeing and sponsoring a number of our client programs, marketing and sales related to us growing as a business, but also some of the internal operations and support and challenge to the different programs we run. I also speak at events and and podcasts, and we've published a book as well, because as a boutique agency, our purpose is all around inspiring people to reimagine the world of work. So when we're doing things like this, it's about actually inspiring people to to reimagine how things could be done to create a better workplace, better way of delivering a service, better organizational culture, et cetera. So, so it's quite diverse in terms of what I, what I do, which I find really interesting and enjoyable. But I guess if I think about the challenges, and, and if I think about them probably more from a client programs perspective, because that's probably of more interest to people really, if I think about the, the most challenging things that come up and quite frequently, there's a couple of interlinked things. One is you get clients that actually want a different outcome in terms of a customer experience or service and performance, but they don't necessarily want to face into the realities of the culture changes that are actually needed, or they want a quick fix to the, to the cultural challenge. And, and we have to help them come to a realization that you can't solve that in three months or six months. You know, so, so part of it is about, is really helping them understand what's involved and that actually if you want sustained change and from a cultural point of view, which therefore has sustained improvement on customer experience, 
you need to think about it as a short, medium and long-term and sustained change. So there's a challenge there around just helping clients understand that. And then one that's sort of really linked to it is around, we, we go about identifying the root causes of, of the cultural challenges. And, and sometimes they may be a long way from what a leadership team might have expected were the actual challenges, particularly when you uncover sort of the underlying assumptions and beliefs that are really driving how things are done. Because, you know, when we go through our insight phase and we are gathering both quantitative and qualitative insight, that can uncover what are the real influences when people in the teams what actually drives how they do things. So when we deliver those insight debriefs to leadership teams, it can quite often uncover some stuff that they weren't expecting. And often when we're delivering, going through that debrief process, you can see people going through their the change cycle themselves and see how going through denial or resistance and stuff like that. But, but our role is to lead leadership teams on the journey they need to lead their organization through. So we recognize that's part of our responsibility, but ultimately a leadership team is, is a set of human beings and actually we need to help them through it so that they can then lead the change effectively. So, so that's part of what we really have to factor in and, and you're always facing into that challenge because you want the right outcome for them, for the organization, for everybody, you know, all the people that work within the organization as well as customers, communities, et cetera. So yeah, once we unlock that, it makes a lot of difference. So, so those are probably the, the quite, and it's usually in the very early stages of a client program as well that, that you're sort of wrestling with those, helping people understand the cultural dynamics. Andrew, do you want to continue here? So you, you mentioned it briefly there. This whole role is about delivering the Docklands Light Railway service to our customer. If you go to a supermarket and you buy four pints of milk, you expect to get four pints of milk, not three pints or two pints. So what we do here is exactly that. We aim to run a service from A to B and a customer wants that service and they want it quick and they don't want to wait too long and they want it to be easy, smooth, clean, tidy, on time and just a great experience because there's nothing worse when you're coming home from work and you're delayed and you don't know what's going on and you just want to get home. That's my job is to make sure that it's as smooth, as comfortable, uh, as informative, but as quick as possible to get people from A to B. It is a very challenging role. We've got huge different groups of customers, of businesses and colleges and local communities that we serve. We pride ourselves on being a very local community-based railway and, and who are there to serve the needs of all our local communities, be it from Tower Hamlets and Newham areas of London to business districts like Canary Wharf and then into uh, into the centre of, of the central London Bank and, and Tower Gateway. So coming out of COVID has been very challenging for everybody in this industry. We are proud of, of the service that we were able to run during COVID. We ran a very frequent service where customers were able to use it if they needed to. And we've really built on that from coming out of COVID is to is to encourage people back onto the DLR. We're here, we're open, we're doing exactly what we did before, but with more services. And we've been working hard since COVID to train colleagues, new colleagues into the business, get more trains running out on the network and being able to serve more customers in a way that we perhaps didn't do before. 
and looking after new flows of customers as well. The Elizabeth line opened just after COVID, and that's changed some of the dynamics of the way that customers move around East London. There's lots of exciting new developments going on in East London. There's existing venues and places to go to, like London City Airport and Excel Arena, and they're only expanding and getting bigger and, and getting more adventurous with what they provide. So so we're really here to help customers get to those locations and, and build on that excitement of the development of East London. Nice. Mm. Love that. So Derek, I'm really keen to get your sense of what exactly culture is and how does human-centered design fit into that? It is one of those words that is used quite a lot and, and people struggle to get their arms really around what is organization culture. But yeah, an organization's culture will exist regardless. It is formed and it grows and developed throughout the lifetime of the organization. And, and ultimately, it's the way things just get done within the organization. Okay, And it often sits as a bit of an unseen presence and influence on everyday actions, processes, attitudes. It's in effect a learned set of assumptions based on people's shared history and experience of working within the organization. So sometimes people say, well, we haven't defined our culture, so we don't have one. No, you, you do have a culture because from day one, it started to be formed and it's built up as experiences change. So ultimately, your culture is lived through your people. So whilst formal structures or, or company values or, and policies and processes and systems and performance management and even the workplace environment, will influence the culture. It's those human interactions that actually bring about the lived reality. So whether that be leadership behaviors, it's the customer experience, the how customers interact with you influences the culture, the way suppliers interact with you. All of those things really influence the dynamics of the way things are done within the organization. And for me, the designing an optimum organizational culture to support an organization's ambition needs to be human-centered by design because ultimately it's the human beings are the most complex part of an organization and they are the ones that bring about the culture which bring about the service which bring about the brand experience etc so i very much have a view of you know and the way we approach our programs is enabling the people to design what's needed to enable them to perform to their best, as well as being highly engaged and having greater impact. And so it touches every part of an organization and impacts so much, even though it's not a conscious thing. I was just thinking about Andrew's world of transport, trains, railways. We were asked to investigate a, a culture where there have been far too many, sadly, far too many incidents, accidents, near misses, and sadly, fatalities within the workforce. The organization had completed numerous reviews, investigations, and as a result of that, invested so much in training and safety awareness programs, rewritten their safety policies, all with good intent, but they didn't have the impact. You know, the safety record and experience was not improving as you'd want it to. All of the work that he'd done in terms of in trying to improve the safety was not done from a human-centered design perspective or from a holistic culture perspective. So... Every time they did an investigation, a set of recommendations would come out, but those recommendations would be to resulted in further policies and further procedures or more training. And, and what happened is that 
the pattern just kept repeating itself over time. And what did that mean? Well, what happened is they ended up building more complexity into the way people needed to work. Yet the workforce were being asked to make in-the-moment decisions and take actions to complete repair works, etc. So following a 50-page process document is not helping them in the moment. Yeah, it needed to be get much more simple. So leadership and management thought they were doing all the right things by introducing more policy and process, but actually it was increasing complexity and increasing risk when actually what they needed to do was really simplify things and explore how they could really remove much human activity from moving machinery, trams and trains. And so it's about, from that point of view, it's about helping the leadership team really understand the culture they created was one of complexity. And they were caught in this vicious cycle whereby whenever something happened that wasn't what they wanted, they actually went back around the cycle to complete, you know, and added in more complexity. Thank you, Derek. You've spoken a little bit about what culture is. It's this intrinsic, inherent thing that we might not all be aware of, but it's most certainly there. And it comes with our own lived experience, both personally and professionally, of of what we're doing and what we're all about. But why is it so important? And how can it financially impact businesses? Do you have any case studies or stats that you can share with us around the, the financial impact? So if you're tracking an organization, if you take a, a series of companies and you're tracking their cultural attributes against a range of indicators, those that have uh, a very small ranking on those indicators would class as having a weak culture. And then obviously at the opposite end, those that are tracking really well against those attributes will have a strong positive aligned culture. Now, there's been some research done uh, by Boston Consultant Group that has tracked organizations with all those ranges of different indicators. So weak through mixed through to strong. Now, if you then track that against total shareholder return over a five-year period, those with a weak culture, 10%, typically a 10% shareholder return versus those which have a strong culture, actually 24% average total shareholder return. So even if you just take it at that top level perspective, the research that Boston Consultant Group did tracked that and you can see therefore the difference between a a weak one to a mixed one is 10% to 13% but mixed one to strong cultures up to 24%. So if you look at it from a shareholder value perspective you you do have those perspectives but but then if you break down and come down to other metrics customer metrics increased by 10% in terms of customer satisfaction you naturally where you have a strong culture People who are more highly engaged will often give some discretionary effort, you know, so higher performance, so you can get greater productivity, you know, and and that's been tracked around 17%. Staff attrition rates can reduce anywhere between, uh, I've seen figures between 24% and and 60% reduction in staff attrition because people want to stay longer because they feel more engaged. So, and also if you think, particularly in the current climate, and actually it's a generational thing, People joining an organization are very much looking at the culture and whether they feel that's a culture that they they will thrive in. So it, it's now becoming much more of a, a factor in people's decision-making about whether I should join. So if you have a strong culture, you're more likely to both attract and then retain people that, that are a good fit for you. So you've got figures like that. And, and then the, again, there's been research over, over the last 20, 20, 25 years with actually the keeps on sort of reaffirming that 
organization culture creates 66% of the variation in business performance through having a defined and lived culture. So when we work with clients, yeah, you, you still think there is so much untapped potential. So I, I said I'd talk about, you know, one then specific client and and the one I'll just talk about is Mortgage Advice Bureau. We've designed and implemented a new culture for them over a two-year period. And the metrics that they're seeing in terms of results are from a people point of view, two and a half times more people would recommend someone to work at the organization. So if you think about it, from staff currently, they are more likely to say to their friends and family, come and work here, which if they didn't have a strong culture, they wouldn't do that. So you've got people uh, that are actually promoting it and that's leading to a lot more attraction. So it's helping solve some of their talent challenges. Their net promoter score has gone from 13, which is a good, to 32, which is great within a 12-month period and has continued to track improvement. Countless awards, including business culture awards, so not just business culture, but industry awards as well, which again, they tracked to actually the a shift that they've provided in terms of their customer experience. And their revenues are up 27%, profitability up 28% plus. So they're based on actual metrics that a client has been tracking from day one and the shift that has happened. So it, it's very real in terms of the impact that a cultural shift can have. Absolutely. It's really interesting what you were saying around both the internal and the external, the tangible impact in terms of financial return, but also that sense of uh, employees going the extra mile for their employers. I think that's huge. And I think that's been a real step change, my perception anyway, especially since um, the pandemic, how that's absolutely crucial and has changed hugely. People look for those cultural indicators to see whether there's harmony, whether there's that, that alignment you spoke of, to, you know, to decide whether they want to be part of that business. And I think that's uh, it's been a huge change. Yeah, it, it, it has been a huge change. One that I just see is continuing because people are now, they have more choice. They're actually making life choices about what they want to do. And we saw that through the pandemic and actually that will only continue. Andrew, coming to you, I guess you're bound to view culture from a different perspective. What links the two of you together is you're obviously putting people at the heart of what you do which is a key principle of human-centred design. Can you talk us through a project of yours in particular that implements human-centred design? Yeah, yeah absolutely. People are at the heart of everything we do here on the DLR, be it from our colleagues and employees of QLS and Amy Docklands, who go that extra mile to provide the service and provide that unique experience on the DLR. But also, we want to welcome in as many people to the DLR as possible. It's not just about people who live or work in our area of East London. It's about welcoming everybody in, new people from, from within our communities who, who maybe have not travelled with us before. It could be tourists from within uh, the airport and, and going to visit the great places that are on offer in East London. But also the, the project that we've been working on is expanding the accessibility of the DLR and opening it up truly to everybody. Uh, we talk about culture and I think Culture is something that changes over time, and perhaps that's our understanding as a as a human race of what words and definitions mean over time. But but also how how our ages and and our age groups of humans change our understanding and challenge our perception of what what we thought it was or what our elders thought it was. And and as I say, accessibility is something that we've identified that we could help improve on the DLR. And I think accessibility as a term 
in historic sense has been can you get in a lift to get on the train can you go in that lift to get onto the platform and get on the train and i think for a lot of people that would have meant people in wheelchairs well that's one part of accessibility but there's so much more to accessibility than just wheelchairs and we've challenged ourselves and we've looked at ourselves and we thought how is our railway accessible to everybody not just somebody who's got a disability and needs a wheelchair what if you're blind what if you're able to walk but your mobility impaired what if you have a mental health issue that makes you scared or you're scared about traveling on a train these things are barriers to accessibility for a lot of people and we've worked really hard to try and break those down and solve them and we've worked with a partner called Go Media on a product called Navilens. For anybody who hasn't seen Navilens, if you go in the supermarket and you have a look at Kellogg's cereal packets, you'll see a very funny-looking, colourful barcode on them. That's Navilens. So you use your mobile phone or a tablet with a barcode scanner to pick up this barcode and it scans and gives you information through your headsets or your phones on what we've programmed. So we've worked really hard with GoMedia on a six-month trial to look at creating more accessible travel for a lot more people. And these barcodes, we've gone through four stations on the DLR network to make them more accessible by using the Navilans and GoMedia products. So we've put them at Cutty Sark, Canary Wharf, Woolwich Arsenal, and Tower Gateway. So if you visit those four stations today, you'll see lots of these coloured squares all around the place where, where you can actually, if you download the Navilens app, you can scan those yourselves and it'll tell you uh, all about the station and how to get around. So we've done a six-month trial with that. We started it in early July, so um, we're just over halfway through that now and we'll finish it at the end of the year. Really importantly, we've worked with a number of uh, fantastic stakeholders on, on delivering that, and the biggest partner in that has been the Royal National Institute for the Blind, big supporter of that charity and the work that they do, but they've also been very supportive uh, and helping this get this trial off the ground. A lot of potential in this to, to really open it up to so many more people to invite them into the DLR and experience again what we've already said which is what a fantastic place East London is and what a lot it's got to offer people both work leisure and a tourist setting amazing it's such an incredible project such an incredible project and so important Derek what do you think the key things are that people should be thinking about if they want a really high performing culture is there an organization that you think oh they have a, a really ideal culture that functions really well that would be great for anybody looking for a few hints and tips we often get asked this in terms of you know show us a good example and it's almost like people want to then go and copy it it's like oh we'll take that one but the reality is every organization's culture is unique to them and so whilst there might be common problems or challenges for example needing to improve customer experience or needing to embark on digital transformation or we're bringing together two organizations as a result of M&A activity. The current organization culture will be different for every organization because it is a product of its own history and the people's experience in there. So I would always say, yes, you can look for ideas and tips, but you can't just go and lift one off the shelf and say, I'll have that one and plug it in and play. It doesn't work like that. So the thing for me is around 
looking at, well, what is it the organization is striving to achieve? What is it aiming to achieve? What's its ambitions? And they're really designing and articulating a culture that will work for this organization in fulfilling those ambitions, that strategy, that business plan. So take what's good from what exists today and is helping performance and impact today, build on it, turn the dial up on it a little bit more on those attributes that are really working, but also think actually, well, what attributes of our culture don't serve us quite so well now, or what new attributes might we need? So for example, if over the last few years, you've been product and services, you've just been making fine tuning, you've been just sort of doing incremental improvements or incremental innovation on your existing products and services, but going forward, you believe you're going to have to do much more radical or differentiated innovation. That is going to require a different organizational culture to support that in order to bring in more inclusivity, to encourage diversity of thought and ideas. And how do you actually bring about and you have a different risk appetite for you to be able to then deliver more radical innovation? So for me, it's about really starting with that what do we need in this organization and intentionally design that to support the ambitions, but in designing that, involve the people in designing it. Okay. So from coming back to the human centered design point of view, because everybody will have their perspective and know what will work, you know, from a customer experience point of view, but also you will achieve so much more success. People have a greater sense of ownership where they've participated in designing it. So they're more likely to adopt it and therefore fully embed it. So I would really rather look to take from somewhere else. Actually, what do you need and build your own cultural attributes? And then having done that with the teams of people in the organization, you really need to then activate it. And leadership becomes a quite a key role here because you do need uh, leaders who are going to actually role model and walk the talk because no matter how much you may embed the culture that you've designed into policies, processes, structures, leaders have three times more impact than those formal structures. Okay, so people will follow what a leader does, not what a leader says or what a policy says. So really that, that leadership and role modeling is really critical from that point of view. And particularly leaders need to intentionally change how they lead in order to support the new culture and to maybe shift some of the current underlying assumptions about the way things are done. So it needs to be very intentionally different. So that whole yeah, leadership role modeling is vitally critical, particularly where you are looking to make a shift. Yeah, if you think about the innovation side of things, and we had one organization where we uncovered a, a shared assumption. It hadn't been stated anywhere, but this is the what happened day in, day out, where they valued flawless execution and everything must be documented. So what had been created was lots of long processes, yeah, lots of documentation, over-reporting and multiple dashboards, very structured um, processes. But then also people felt like everything they presented had to be perfect. So how it manifested itself then, people would work exceptionally long hours to get a document absolutely perfect before they presented it to a group. And actually that leadership team were like, they just were unaware of that was what was going on. So if you think about actually innovation, you've got to take more risk, you've got to, you know, test and learn, you know, and that's one of their, was one of their drivers. Actually, 
maybe shift into a sooner rather than perfect type of ways of working was appropriate for them. But that would require leadership to actually intentionally do something different in order to break that unwritten assumption that says we value flawless execution. So interesting. So interesting. It's, it really kind of um, took a lot from that. But one of the main things was talking about that kind of main goal and almost working back from that in terms of how you uh, align your organization, how you get people involved. And at my we talk a lot about our kind of North Star Phil Nutley, our head of experience design, would would love the fact that I mentioned that. But uh, it's so important to start off with an agreed outcome or goal and then work backwards from that and then bring everyone along the journey with you. Yeah, absolutely true. And that's, you can think about it in terms of the purpose of the organization. What's the impact that you're really looking to have? And you can then look at actually, well, what does that mean from a customer experience, from a people's experience? So look at it through multiple lens, but you do need that North Star is as a key one because then you can flow everything from it and stop doing things that aren't in support of that. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. Well, sadly, we're coming to the end of yet again, another really fascinating episode. Derek, Andrew, thank you once again for joining us. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you'd like to share with us? I just wanted to say what a fantastic podcast that was. Great conversation. Thanks for everybody. Uh, for being part of that and for, for letting me be involved in the discussions we've had today. Probably just uh, one final thing for people to think about is don't sort of leave these things to chance and really do pay attention to the culture and what's actually happening and and think about are, are we making some assumptions around how things need to be done. So even yesterday, one of the team heard someone yeah, within a client say, I think our people will want this. Okay, actually, no, let's stop as leaders and managers making judgments and assumptions around what people might want and let's involve them and ask the question because we will get to the right answer that much faster. And so I think for me, it's just about really paying attention to the culture on longer basis, listening out for things, monitor stuff, and just don't leave it to chance because if you leave it to chance, it will drift and all of a sudden it will become a problem. Whereas actually, if you'd have reacted sooner, then then you can nudge it back in the right direction as you need to, or as you think we do need to adapt it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, from my perspective as a marketeer, the worst and biggest mistake you can make is assuming what you think is what everyone else thinks. And I think that sounds uh, very similar to what you mentioned there. But uh, thank you both for sharing all your knowledge and insights today. It's been really, really interesting and, and hopefully hugely helpful to our listeners. And to everyone out there, thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed all the conversation and have gained some fresh new insights. Please head over to our website, mimagroup.com, for more information on our work, or if you'd like to reach out to see how we can help you and your organisation on your next project. And once again, I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Ollie Bennett-Coles. And this has been Redesign from MIMA. Be sure to subscribe to all future podcasts wherever you may get them, and we'll see you all on the next one.